0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: Many have noted that these little letters, 2nd and 3rd John, are very short, number one, but they're also personal. We talked about pastoral letters being Paul particularly was writing to a church church but he's writing to Timothy or Titus, but the intent of that letter was to be shared. These are a little different. Um, They're a little more personal, and the brevity of them makes it quite intriguing uh, to know what would be some of the backstory behind why John is writing these short letters. Um, One commentator says these are notes snatched from the everyday correspondence of an apostle. I like that. You think about if you've been around people in office, uh, legislators, elected officials, judges, they keep everything. Everything is written and codified, it's put on computers. But think of a post-it. You don't necessarily hang on to a post-it. This would be like a post-it. This is a small message he's sending and we get the glimpse of seeing what an apostle put. Oh, by the way, uh, J. Vernon McGee, some of you know that name, uh, he said, you must recall that John is the apostle who writes of the family of God. Paul writes of the church of God and Peter writes of the government of God. I thought that was also a fair distinction. Well these three letters I'm putting together is called facets of fellowship because they all have to do with fellowship but they're very nuanced and very different when you look at them in some detail. We looked at 1 John last time which is an interesting text that talks about we want you to have fellowship with the apostles and then with God the Father. And you, if you were here last or two weeks ago and we talked about this, that strikes me because you would think he would say we want to have fellowship with the Father and us. But it's reversed very intentionally because this body that we call the New Testament, the Gospels and all the letters, 27 books, are the apostolic teachings about Jesus. This gives us all the information we need to know about the Messiah that the Old Testament saints looked forward to, the devout Jews of old look forward to. So this is God's very word, He spoke it, it has no error, it is transmitted across time, we have so many translations uh, in our English tongue it's very easy to read, and this is given to us to explain the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if you don't accept what the apostles are saying, John is saying, you can't know God. That's quite a statement. You can't know about this God unless you understand who this Jesus is. And the way you're going to know who this Jesus is is by what God the Father had the apostles put to pen, put to paper uh, what we now have in our text in our hand. Uh, so this fellowship begins with the apostles who gave the message, then gives it the, with the body of Christ, the, the, the Father. And then 2 John really is also about fellowship, but it's, it's forbidding fellowship with the wrong people. He's going to revisit the idea of false teachers, which we talked about in 1 John. So there's going to be fellowship with God's people, don't have fellowship with those who are false teachers, and then 3 John is going to be a positive and negative example about two people, and we'll look at those in some detail. So we have this fellowship with the believers and the Father, we have people to avoid fellowship with, and this last one sort of encompasses the whole thing, the right kind of fellowship in the right way it's illustrated. So we're looking at two today, 2nd and 3rd John. Let me try to package these together because they're very short books. You can read them in probably less than five minutes just taking your time. But this chosen lady, we don't know much about her. It's it's a lot of speculation to spend time on it. Uh, John is commending the love that's going on uh, as an example to other people. And so this is the necessary ingredient for the Christian life. You have to have this fellowship of love with one another for one another, but he has this stern warning about these false teachers. Um, in the ancient letter between 1st and 3 John is an interesting bridge, and it does give us this inside glimpse into what's going on personally with these relationships. Not too much, but it tells us about this church, about this author, and he's going to refer to himself as the elder, which we'll also show you in a moment. Um, essentially, it's a it's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter of exhortation and a letter of admonition. And in a culture that does not like to be corrected, that does not like to be fact-checked, this is counterculture today just like it was when John wrote it. Uh, Let's say probably the first century, late first century. Um, I'm going to show you a chart that Ken Wilkinson and and, um, Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson put together in that book we've talked about again and again. I've truncated it for space and content, but he's just doing a comparison and contrast with 2nd and 3rd John. So you've got love mentioned four times, two times. You've got beloved mentioned four, four times in 3rd John. You have truth mentioned about the same number of times, the phrase, the elder whom I love in truth in both letters. Um, you've got this joyful report. Uh, from teachers he's dispatched, but then you have a warning about hospitality with enemies and then you have an encouragement to have the right kind of hospitality. So there's a lot of argument, they, they fit together pretty tightly. Some argue it might have been written at the same time or very close to the same time. There's a commendation that's followed by a rebuke in Second John and there's a commendation followed by a rebuke in Third John. There is a commendation about bad doctrine and then there's a commendation about, uh, bad, co- uh, about bad conduct. So they go back and forth a little bit just as a, as a visual sometimes helps me to look at, okay, what's happening with these two letters side by side? Let me read Second John verses 7 and 8. This I think is the theme or main idea that he's writing in this letter. "...for many deceivers have gone out into the world Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh this is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished but that you may receive a full reward. We address this issue of antichrist because it's important in John's language and it's important for us to understand what it does and doesn't mean. The simple way to understand antichrist the way he's using it is a false teacher not the Antichrist. I've mentioned this many, many times. Had we lived in the mid-1940s and you were a born-again, Bible-believing, evangelical, fundamental kind of Christian, you would have probably thought Hitler was the Antichrist. He's killing Jews, he's going after world domination, world power, it's a world war. Uh, you, you would be silly not to think that. So it, We're not always talking about one person. And what John does in these letters is talk about the Antichrist being anyone that encompasses or teaches false teaching that's against the the gospel that they have been clear. What's insightful or to me what's intriguing in verse 8, watch yourself that you don't lose what we've accomplished. So he's taking some ownership in what he's done to help them but this has to do with rewards. Um, another area for your study and something we may get into at some point in time there are more than one, there's more than one judgment in the New Testament and there's all kinds of rewards that are discussed in the New Testament that most Christians are very confused about or they don't know what they mean and they kind of walk away from them. But what he's saying here is if you don't stay faithful you're not going to lose your salvation but you will suffer loss. You will lose reward. And so that audience would have heard that very clearly. If you get sucked into this false teaching If you get deceived by this culture uh, you're going to lose some of the gains you've had and that's one of the reasons he's writing, watch yourself. Verses 10 and 11 he continues, "'If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him. Do not receive him into your house. And do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds.'" Now again, taken on the surface, that seems really harsh. Um, if someone comes in the congregation and is an antichrist, is a false teacher, you don't have anything to do with them. Now some of you, don't have to raise hands, might have grown up in a church background that was separatistic. And you, you don't associate with certain people. And there, along Christianity there's this huge Gap. I have friends that I love, 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 love dearly, but I have become too liberal for them over the years. And it's just that's the continuum. They don't hate me, they just don't associate with me anymore. I guess maybe they don't like me, but uh, it, it's just different. And you might have people that have gone too far and addressed you. Well, I don't know if we, that's not what this is about. What this is about is understanding in the Old Testament economy, shalom wasn't just, hey, how you doing? Hey, how are you? This was, a, this was a greeting of fellowship and communal relationship. If you were a Jew, you lived in a hostile world. And if you've traveled abroad and maybe you've been gone a long time, three four weeks, and you're in a country perhaps that's not very um, let's say kind to the ugly American, and you might have experienced some jaundice and hate in your interactions, and you meet someone who speaks English. You're best friends. I mean you start talking about old times. And it's very interesting, that connection. Keep that emotion in mind when you think of first century Jews who were coming to Christ. They didn't have a lot of friends. So this idea of shalom, this idea of peace be with you, uh, grace and peace to you were not just cliche greetings. Uh, I've been uh, teasing a lot of my family and friends that we begin sentences with the word hey all the time here in Milton, Tennessee. We say Hey! Jesus came and he said, Hey, guys. No, he never said, Hey. It's just some kind of transition word that's worked its way into our language. I don't know why. Somebody who knows syntax can explain it to me. But hey, so let's go back to this. Ta- hey, what this passage says this isn't casual, it isn't colloquial, it's very intentional. And it's hard when we read this don't receive somebody like this, don't hang around with them. So, we have to understand a little bit more about what he's saying. We'll get to that in a moment. Third John is going to remind us that truth, love, mission, and hospitality are all part of this letter. Uh, James Sweeney writes the purpose of Third John is a brisk note of encouragement to a trusted and well grounded colleague. So, again, it's a, like a little handwritten note that wasn't. Perhaps the same intent. We would look at these other letters. Oh, Romans, of course, that's a doctrinal treatise we'd study all our life. These are postcards, some people call them, but they're still giving us insight in this personal connection that the apostle has with people that he names. Um, we also have this, this person Gaius, and we'll talk about him again in a few moments. Let me read chapter three, uh, t- uh, excuse me, John, third John, verse eleven. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good the one who does good is of God, the one who does evil is not, even, has not seen God. And again these sound so hard until you understand we're not talking about nuances we're not talking about separatism because I don't use the King James for example we're talking about error, we're talking about heresy. And again that's hard to define but that's what this backdrop is about. Let me talk about two lessons and I'll try to expand both these ideas that we see in 2nd and 3rd John. The first one is fellowship is not friendship with the world. Fellowship is one of these religious words like glory and holy and blessed. They mean everything, therefore, they mean nothing. A fellowship is an alliance. Fellowship is more than a treaty or a pact or an ally in battle. Fellowship is an intimate relationship. In fact, we're told not to be unequally yoked, right? When Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, "Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness?" And these passages are saying, if you're hanging around an unbeliever, first of all, we'll talk about knowing why, but be careful because the lowest common denominator is going to impact you. You're going to get pulled into this. And how many of us know story after story of some fine young Christian high school kid that goes off to a, a very liberal university and they take a couple of philosophy courses or religion, religion class on world religion and they come back the first year and they don't believe what mom and dad taught them? It's almost cliche. Um, we used to talk about learning to be critical thinkers. No, your children are getting indoctrinated. That's just how the world's working. Sorry if you don't like my opinion. That's the fact. Fact check me on it. Uh, They're indoctrinating them. And if you have tenure it's very difficult, if not impossible, to move people out that hold certain ideals. And so your children are tossed into this and then all of a sudden they, they don't believe anything. You put a child who's impressionable by a bunch of people with doctors in front of their names it doesn't take long for them to question what they believe. Fellowship is not friendship with the world. That doesn't mean you go, don't go to a secular college, it just means you keep your head screwed on and you keep your spiritual life lined up with the Lord and the Word and other, other Christians. Um, the passage is saying that if you have no agreement I don't want to sound unkind, but you don't hang around these people for your best friends. Now that does not mean we're not friends with them. And this is where my separatistic Christian friends would have a different view. They would separate so much from them, same church, same fellowships, same community groups, same travel, they have nothing to do with those that don't know Christ. And I'm not saying that's a wrong way, it just doesn't seem to align with what the rest of Scripture teaches. Matthew 7.15 warns against being around false prophets. Titus 3.10 says we're to admonish a factious man. But in, in, in John, uh, 2 John 9 and 10 we're, we're not to even greet these people, not to talk to them because we'll get pulled in and they will impact us and affect us. Um, I hope you and I ha- both have non-Christian friends. I shared with you a few weeks ago about one of my friends that did not know the Lord and he passed away very suddenly with a heart attack. And I beat myself up like perhaps you have done. Now I did share the Gospel with him many times. We had good collegial arguments and I'm hoping at some point in there he'd put it all together. But the last conversation we had, he was far from the kingdom. So I don't know, you know what happened before he had the heart attack the next day and passed away. But it grieves me. But I also think that you know, I'm supposed to have non-Christian friends. I'm supposed to be in the world not of the world. I'm supposed to do the work of the evangelist. That doesn't mean I stand on a corner with a big Bible and scream at people with a bullhorn. But it does mean, in my sphere of influence, and you and yours, you have friends that don't know the Lord. And if you're nice to these people, and you love these people, and you're kind to them, and you care about them, and you share a little booklet or, or a CD or whatever you like, and say hey, you might write like this article, send them a link, and just start the conversation. You know what I've found, and I bet you have too. Most of my conversations with non-Christian friends have come about because they know I'm a Christian, and something finally happens. Or they have a question, and they know. "Ah, I know you're that preacher boy, but that's a tee up for me. That's wonderful, because I'm not trying to hide this. I mean, you've got it so much easier than me. Trust me on this. It's worse than being, you know, in a multi-level marketing scheme. No, no offense (laughs) intended. You know, I'm an insurance guy. Hey, let's have lunch. You know, I I don't. I don't want to buy insurance from you. We don't do that much anymore. But that was old days. They know I'm a preacher, man. Put the earphones on, hide the book, you know? Remember Robert Morgan was here a few months back and he was sitting on the plane. Why is it we always have these plane conversations with people? It's sort of Western weird to me, but he says, you know, I'm sitting there going, I know I should talk to this guy, I don't want, he's got his big Bible out there, he's reading his big old Bible, and he goes, Lord just kept beating him up, and he says, okay, and he says, look, I'm a Baptist pastor, do you have any questions? (laughs) Worst transition sentence I've ever heard in my life. He leads the guy to Christ. So I don't understand all I know, but I do know that we're more afraid of the what if than we are just taking the risk. And if they know you're a Christian, they just might have a question or two, and you might have a conversation with them. To be in and of the world is the balance. 1 Corinthians 5 9, I wrote you in my letter, Paul says, not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean with the immoral people of this world. or or the covetous, or swindlers, or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of this world. I mean, it's pretty common sense, right? So what what is John saying here? This isn't your fellowship, that's why this word's important. These can be friends. You can be loving and friendly to those who don't know Christ. But your core need to be people who love you, who think similarly, who are going in the same direction, who hopefully are growing in Christ. Those are the ones you want to rub shoulders with. God is not being unkind about being separatistic, he's saying don't associate with false teaching that's going to corrupt your thinking and other people as well. It's interesting, when I do certain things publicly, I I had someone go after me a while back because I had a guest on the podcast and they were very upset because this person wasn't down the line theologically like me. And I said, well I wasn't talking to that person about those issues, I know that. But Otherwise, I just have four people to talk to, right? I mean, because we're not going to agree on everything when it comes to the finer points of theology. But that's my job when I'm controlling the conversation on the podcast to be sure we land the plane in the right place. I interviewed a gentleman this week that holds to replacement theology. You know what that means? Israel and the church, so that the church has replaced Israel. A lot of people believe that. I think that's flat wrong. Well, I'm not going to pick a fight with him. And he knew. Before he talked to me, because he knows my background, he knows Michael doesn't believe in that. Cool, we're not going to fight over that issue. He's an expert in other areas. So this idea of having a relationship with Christians is a, is a complicated thing. We make it too complicated. We make it so complicated. But you do need to know where those lines and boundaries are. Go look. Just because I had this person over for dinner doesn't mean I drink the Kool Aid, right? So that's where we give each other a little bit of of freedom. Fellowship is an alliance, it's sharing, it's a common faith, it's an intimate relationship that I have with God and another believer. That's why it's more than just friendship with the world. Cindy and I just came back from D.C. We went up there and spent four or five days and we were in that chapter of our life. We were there when our children were similar ages with these other friends, and we grew up together. We were there almost 12 years, right at 12 years. And those friendships are now 20 some years in length, 24 or more. It's not that they're the best people in the universe, we just were with them a long time. And we all went through thick and thin with health issues, with our children challenges raising kids, which still goes on for some of these folks. Um, marriages that these kids, the, the, the other ones are not married yet, and parents worry about that. Um, but we got together. One of Cindy's friends is her best friend, and um, and this woman has had MS for thirty some years. She lives in chronic pain, and she has these windows of time. And sometimes we go and we can't see her because she's too 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 much pain. Um, maybe we get an hour with it. We had four hours. I it was like I left my socks somewhere. I, my shoes came off a long time ago, and I lost my socks. It was like a holy four hours talking to this couple. They know the Lord, they share Christ with people they 've had kids that have broken their hearts all the, uh, just like all of us, right? Everybody said, "Amen, If you have more than one child you 're going to have a problem child. Another cheery, Michael lazy sermon. Just, just write it down you 'll feel better when it happens um, There's a fellowship there that's unbelievable. And we had several meetings like that with friends for many, many years. That's what fellowship is. You just pick up where you are, you pray for one another, there's sincerity, there's trust. We didn't even turn on the TV. We didn't talk about movies. We talked about books. We talked about what we're learning. We talked about what we're going to do in life. Second lesson Abiding in truth maintains brotherly love. I didn't say that very well. Uh, Forgive me, you can improve on it. But the way I maintain a loving relationship is I got to be moored to the truth. That's what he's saying. This is a a little bit analytical or maybe kind of higher math to think about what, what John is saying here, but this is a really insightful point. If I'm going to stay in the truth, abide is a big Johannine word. He uses it in the Gospels and he uses it in all the epistles. It's a big word, one of those religious words. It doesn't just mean I agree with, there's a connection here. And what John is saying is you abide in the truth how often do I talk about a biblical mooring? you got to have a mooring to the Scripture. you got to think biblically and theologically. Don't let the world teach you theology. you got to have a biblical mooring. It's going crazy. If you'd have told me ten years ago how crazy the Christian community would be in this country I would not have believed how crazy it has become. On the one hand it's terrifying, on the other hand it's exciting. Because truth is always true. Christians shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't, we shouldn't cower back and be unwilling to talk. We should be kind, we should be courageous. And the only way you're going to keep a loving relationship and here he's talking about believers primarily is if you abide in the truth. If you separate love from truth what do you have? Arguments. Fights. Arrogance. Hubris. I'm right. You're wrong. You're wrong. I'm right. All these kind of things we go round and round about. So he's going to use this positive and negative example to explain this in 3 John. Gaius was the one who's walking in truth. And it causes John to write a letter, I have no greater joy than this, than my children walk in the truth. Any parent can apply that wonderfully, can we not? When your son or daughter loves the Lord and he or she brings home a Christian boyfriend girlfriend and they're making good decisions, I remember both of my older daughters shamed me at different times in the way they approach things as Christian girls. Than I did as their father. I can remember both of them kind of, Dad, that's not what you need to do. And they were right and I was wrong. I'm the overprotecting black and white father. If it looks like, you know, hammer it, you know? No, Dad. And both of them have a much better way with people sometimes, a lot of times, than I do. This is great love when you see your children walk in truth. On the other hand, Diotrephes is the negative example. And he he loves to be first. It's an interesting text. He loves to be first. I mean, just stop right there. What do we say about a person who wants to be first all the time? Bite your tongue. He loves to be first. He unjustly accused others with wicked words. Anybody here been slandered or misrepresented besides me? Oh, you're boring. Come on. Of course you have. doesn't feel good, does it? You don't like it. If you're abiding in truth, you can be loving. If you're not abiding in truth, you're gonna get angry. And that happens to me sometimes. I get ticked at people's responses. Um Diotrephes is the negative example. He intimidates, he was arrogant, he was selfish. So you have Gaius or Diotrephes. These are two examples. And this little tiny postcard he's telling him exemplary to if you want to keep brotherly love, you have to be anchored to the truth. Don't let the world teach you theology. Keep that rope short. Tie it to your scripture so you don't get too far away. You know, when you raise children, we're, we're in such a complicated time right now because uh, the school systems, and I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I th- think I'm actually becoming more a conspirator. But um, w- when you see what some educational influences are doing to our children, what they're telling them, you can get pretty upset. You can be pretty angry. Uh, you know, my children were young. Um, I was judging them all the time. Now today that sounds terrible. But whenever you correct somebody you're judging them. When you leave this parking lot and there's a stop sign out there or a stoplight, you've been judged. The moral law just told you stop, whether you like it or not. Because it affects other things, right? The idea of a speed limit in theory is if you go this speed you're more likely to be safe, you won't hurt other people. If you've read The Abolition of Man, a little 43-page book that you can read again and again and again and again and again. and again, C.S. Lewis had his finger on the pulse of 2021 and he talks about the Tao, or the Tao T-A-O. And basically he says in every culture there are moral laws that are hardwired. That would be the way I would paraphrase him. And the illustration he uses is when someone cuts in line. How do you feel when somebody cuts in line? I was coming back from the airport the other day, and you know when you get on, I always get the numbers 40 and 440 mixed up, but you know that one bottleneck where you're waiting to get on, that'd be 440, right? And you just kind of go along. And you, what do people do? Always. The last minute they come up in front of you and they pull in. And I'm always so happy, aren't you? <laughs> and the person I did to last week, they weren't happy with me either. <laughs> it's something hardwired. That's wrong don't lose your common sense, men and women. It's okay to tell your son or daughter, that's wrong, honey. That's wrong. And that's where I think Christians have lost their courage. They don't want to get in trouble with the culture, the neighbor, the community. You can smile when you say it, that sometimes helps. (laughs) When our kids were little, and I know our children were far worse than yours, um, but they would argue about the chore list in our house was so easy. I mean, you and I had chores that were chores, right? I mean they were chores, right? We, we, we sweated from our brow like Adam, that was our chore. Our children's chores were cleaning the table off after dinner, emptying the garbage uh, before Saturday morning, uh, before noon they had to have done their laundry and their sheets and made their bed. They could do it Thursday, Friday, didn't matter, but Saturday noon if it wasn't done you're home. You know when they started thinking about it? 11.59 on Saturday morning. And there's a big fight every time. And so it's joyful. And so you tell these kids over and over and over, look, this is not just about you doing this. This is a family. There's six people in this house. And when the table's done, mom's done most of the preparation. Dad's the loaf. He just comes home. But you guys need to clear the table and put the dishwasher and, you and so they would fight about it. Whose day it was? So we get the chart on the wall. You're the chart on the refrigerator. This is your day for trash. You know, that works for about a week. And so you're always training. You're always training. And finally, we, we learned this, this one technique that worked maybe for a week. It was uh, They were all arguing. I said, Stop, 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 stop. Um, do you know the word help? When somebody says, I need help, when you say, Mom, I need help with my math, or Dad, I need help with my vocabulary, I would say, sure. Mom says, sure. When someone says, I need help, you say, you're going to help them. So what we're going to say from now on when dinner's over is, Mom, how can I help? And I had them practice it. I said, I want you to smile. Mom, how can I help? (laughs) It worked like once, you know. But you're trying to train them to have an attitude that's moored to truth and keeps the love relationship. It's a strange principle, but that is what John is saying in this final letter. So the letter is important for a lot of reasons. It's applicable today like so much of Scripture. You don't have to make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. You just have to read it and study it a little bit. But our activities show more about who we are, about what we believe. Listen to um, G. Campbell Morgan. This brief letter has an important message for the church in our day. First, we're not really abiding in the truth if we fail to demonstrate love for the brethren in physical and financial ways. We may know the truth intellectually without knowing it experientially. He continues, second, our activities reveal the true attitudes. We can see in our attitude is, if it's loving or selfish. Not by examining our emotions, but by examining our activities. Do our actions demonstrate love or selfishness? This is a very practical and helpful test that we should use on ourselves regularly. If you don't know that you know that you know who this Jesus is, that's the most important thing you'll ever wrestle with. And you don't need to wrestle. You just need to trust Him. You just need to trust Him. He'll carry you, He'll give you meaning in life, He'll give you purpose in life, you'll learn life and all about me. And you'll find a joy that you never found apart from Him.
0: Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mix and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.